The Laughter Permitted Podcast is brought to you by Ally. Do it right. Hello, welcome to Laughter Permitted. I'm Julie Foudy. I'm Lynn Ozawi, and season eight is upon us. Julie and I are thrilled to be back with our dope village, and we are especially grateful to be with our community to have important conversations around women's sports. The timing of the launch of season eight coincides with major news from the world of women's soccer, and we are going to start the season right there. Some context for our dope village. On October 3rd, an investigative report done by former U.S. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates was released and uncovered that the National Women's Soccer League and U.S. Soccer failed to take action against abusive behavior and sexual misconduct. The following is from the summary of the Sally Yates report. Quote, Our investigation has revealed a league in which abuse and misconduct, verbal and emotional abuse and sexual misconduct, had become systemic, spanning multiple teams, coaches, and victims. Beyond that, abuse in the NWSL is rooted in a deeper culture in women's soccer, beginning in youth leagues that normalizes verbally abusive coaching and blurs boundaries between players and coaches, end quote. To discuss the Sally Yates report and state of women's soccer, our guest is Meg Linehan. She's a senior writer for The Athletic, covering the U.S. Women's National Team and NWSL. Just over a year ago, on September 30th, 2021, Meg broke a story in which two NWSL players, Manashim and Sinead Farrelly, came forward to expose abusive behavior they experienced from NWSL coach Paul Riley. And that story led U.S. Soccer to commission the Sally Yates investigation. The 319-page report focuses on Paul Riley and two other NWSL coaches, Rory Dames and Christy Hawley. We encourage you to read Meg's article from The Athletic and the full Sally Yates report, both of which are linked in our description of this episode. But before we get to this episode, it's important for me to share that I am a co-owner of an NWSL team, Angel City FC, and my husband of 27 years coached me in soccer. That being said, I would never advocate a coach-player relationship for my own daughter, any player, or any supervisor subordinate. I do understand the power and balance present in so many of those relationships. And with that, let's bring in the woman whose excellent reporting started soccer's long overdue reckoning. We sat down with Meg on Sunday, October 9th, and here is that interview. Kick back, relax, and unwind. Let's have a good time finding the joy in life. We're smiling so bright, talking and laughing combined. Feeling all right, get comfortable. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. Meg, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, given all your reporting in this space and how close you are to it, I've been wanting to know what was your reaction to the report? Uh, I mean, reading the executive summary, I think, you know, was the first part of it. And I think 
there's always a small part of you as a reporter to see your work kind of confirmed. There is a sense of relief of, okay, you know, it's not that I doubted anything that we had written and it went through so many different levels of vetting, but I think to Mm -hmm. see it confirmed by a former (laughs) deputy attorney general, Mm -hmm. there is the sense of, we knew that there was a problem here and, and that has been not just confirmed, but affirmed and in such a huge, big way. Then I think reading the full report, I think that there was a lot of stuff that we we knew about or had seen in some sense or, you know, beyond just the Portland, beyond the Chicago parts, the, the stuff that had been reported. But there were so many small details while reading through that that I think mm-hmm. just piled up and piled up and piled up that there still was the sense of shock of just like the the dumb dumb things that are in that report in addition to the horrifying right there's so many different levels Mm -hmm. to it and i think the one there was one point where someone had flat you know we're all kind of reading different points we're in this like big group chat at work and we're all reading different points and someone put in the the cindy parlocone part about Mm -hmm. that 2013 comment from mike all of like what's what's on your to-do list beyond sleeping with me and i think everybody just kind of like (laughs) paused and was just like what what is like what is happening and you know i actually had the chance to host a panel with cindy and then becca rue who's executive director of the u.s women's national team pa while in london she was talking about reading the report she said she's read it three times and she still cannot kind of just let all of the stuff that's in that report actually like she can't wrap her arms around it because there's so much of it cindy yeah, mm-hmm. Cindy. And so I, I feel like that's actually a, a pretty good sense mm-hmm. of just like there's so much in there and this is still just scratching the surface, right? Like that's what we know, that there's still this second investigation with the NWCL and NWCL PA, the joint. And, and that, you know, is is going to be, I think, an exhaustive rundown mm-hmm. of everything that's happened since the league's formation. And that is supposed to come out. They're saying they came out with a statement recently saying hopefully by the end of the year. Correct? Yeah, I think that's really the goal is yeah. by the end of the year. And and now what's interesting about this, and I, I had sat down with Jessica Berman, right, NWCL commissioner, Megan Burke, yeah. PA director, and the two lawyers who are overseeing it from the two law firms who are running it as the joint investigation. And there was this sense of we don't really know what's going to be in this Yates report. We have a good sense that we're looking at the same things, but there is an opportunity for us here of having this report come out, figuring out if they saw something that we didn't, but also getting the opportunity essentially to have a second bite at the apple if there is something that needs to get followed up on. And so to see that Portland isn't participating, Louisville isn't participating, Chicago is is delaying their participation for so long, they now get this chance to push even harder on those teams for their participation. And it seems like maybe that's going to work you know, Portland mm-hmm. has promised that they will participate with the joint investigation now in a way that maybe they didn't with Sally Yates. So there is mm-hmm. potential to really still learn some more, even about the stuff that was even in the Sally Yates report. It's interesting to hear Cindy Perlow Cohn's reaction as far as trying to wrap her her arms around the report. I found myself while reading it needing moments to step away and process because there are so many details that seem unfathomable. <laughs> Yeah. And I think we're still also, you know, I think this week was a week for emotional processing and trying to, you know, either go through the rage or the sadness or, you know, I think I've, I've hit every single 
emotion in terms of I, I was very much in a rage place for a good <laughs> three to four days and mm-hmm. on Friday night actually at the game I think some of the sadness hit me like being at Wembley you know surrounded by 76,000 people and just being like this is what we we could be doing all the time right and to know that the cost it takes to have these moments is everything else that's that's happened yeah. and so and then also trying to to have that happiness of like this is what it could be like you know in a, in a nicer world all the time and that this is the norm and not the exception but there is this kind of sense of we've only also scratched the surface too of mm-hmm. i think the emotional part because it's not just i think the instinct is to go for maybe the worst of the worst right the, the sexual abuse or the sexual coercion or you know some of the worst of the the verbal abuse that kind of stuff but the way that what we have seen in this report intersects with racial abuse homophobia like all of this other stuff too that i think we have not really hit the grappling part of that yet where players are just essentially set up for failure right that was i think a part of my original report from last september where you have two players who are are queer in some form right and that intersects so much with that story and it kind of got lost in the shuffle because of the the badness of of what was actually happening and that's i think the stuff that we have to pull apart here is saying are you know the players of color being supported in the best possible fashion and there is a brief section of sally yates's report that i think deals with that but it was not necessarily the direct purview of that investigation Mm -hmm. but that's the systemic stuff i think even a a step further down where the players who are i think in the most danger are the ones that are Mm -hmm. the least supported yeah and it was the to your point about the two players and this exhaustive layer after layer of people having an opportunity this is what just continued to form me as i read it people having an opportunity to do the right thing Uh, time and time again. And yet, whether it was a lawyer or it was an executive with the team or uh, it was the league or it was U.S. soccer or it was even safe sport, right? The the ability to be able to go like, oh, I don't need to take care of that because, you know, that person is or that group is and never assuming any type of accountability for their actions Time and time again. Yeah. So whether it was uh, through anonymous surveys, um, which many teams did, but apparently no one read them on the other side, or if they did, they weren't going to say that they read them. I mean, and obvious in all of these surveys, as we saw with the Chicago Red Stars, was that even I think the number was 70 percent including starters, wasn't like they just, you know, went to the fringe players and said, you know, bubble players, how are, you know, how are you feeling about this coach? It was people who were playing and stars on the team. Obviously, we know what Kristen Press tried to do, but anonymous surveys to um, investigations, as we saw with Portland in 2015. I mean, the fact that they never then, as we know, step up and say uh, Paul Riley was fired because of his behavior and sexual misconduct. It was wish you well. Um, good luck. You know, one, one line from, from Merritt Paulson was, I have a lot of affection for him. Yeah. I, I mean, that is just over and over. And in the end, the only choice really, because it's such an institutional systemic failure is that it falls on the player again, 
to have to say, I have to go public and reopen this wound to actually get anyone to listen to what I'm saying. And the sadness of that, systemically, institutionally, societally, what does it say about us as a society that we don't protect? And, and as Sally Yates said, going down to the youth level, we don't protect our players. I think also there's another element to that, too, of it's not even that they're reporting through the few mechanisms that they have, right, or, or attempting to, but even when someone like Monashim or Sinead Fairley decides, okay, we want to, you know, in, in 2020, right, we, we've decided, okay, we need to report this. Like, we don't think it was handled properly. Sinead had not given Mana the full context of what had happened to her, right? Like, we have to bring this to someone's attention. And so then to not just have to find, like, feel like you have to have someone to protect you in case you get sued for trying to report this behavior, but also giving the league every opportunity and the team every opportunity to handle it internally because they are still worried about the health and safety of the league itself, not, not themselves. Like, we're going to give you every single chance to listen to us directly so that way you can fix this right. without blowing the whole thing up, right? And then when that doesn't work, because Lisa Barrett sends an email and said, saying, wishing right. you all the best, then they take that step of saying, okay, well, it has to be public. Right. But that's, I think, the even worse layer, too, is that the players still felt this obligation of, we don't want to undermine this league because then that mm -hmm. undermines our own safety and security, right? Our own careers. Mm -hmm. So there is that. I mean, that was such a That's big part the, of uh, the just of, be grateful mindset. Yeah, exactly. And I think so much of it boils back to that. And I think that's why it's been such an important contextual part of it of it's not just the NWCL. It goes back to the U.S. national. It's through every single layer of the program of women's soccer in the U.S. of this sense of please just shut up and play and be happy that you're playing. Yep. Yeah, for years I was told that. Just, yeah. just be grateful. You even have a team. You know, and then when I think of it, on a larger scale, I was saying to Lynn the other day, you know, it's really a tale for so many women's sports and female athletes because we're all striving. We all want to play, regardless of what sport you're in. You're trying to create a professional league. You're trying to come out of obscurity and a lack of support and a lack of marketing. And you're trying to find investors. It's like that same tale for every single sport in putting them in a position where just be grateful mindset. Just be grateful you have this. And so it's ripe for abuse on so many layers and so many levels because of that, I think. Yeah, no, a hundred, a hundred percent. And that, I, I think if you're not familiar with the space, right, for the people who are coming in and, you know, maybe their first, their first like introduction to the story is a, a five second news hit or, you know, something that isn't necessarily from people who have been in the space, like, I think the depth of how much that has played a role in this and like that the way that it has built again this kind of culture of silence from the players it's such a huge piece of it it's mm -hmm. a, and and you know i think we've started to see the breaking down of that culture over the past mm -hmm. year but to your point about the the 70 percent of chicago red stars players right reporting that they had experienced some form of abuse i mean the really 
scary thing to me is that so many of those players couldn't even identify the behavior as abusive. So I think there's also a huge educational piece for players here too. And and I want to say Megan Rapinoe is the one who spoke about that in London this week of we have to tell players what is okay and what is not okay. And so much of that learned behavior is coming from the youth system. And whether that's the verbal abuse, the lowering of boundaries, whatever it is, they're seeing it from age eight, nine, 10 yeah. on. And that's I think the really, really scary piece and why so much of what I think we've been trying to talk about in the immediate aftermath of the report is, okay, there's this sense of just imagine what's happening at the youth level. And Sally Yates is over here saying, you don't really have, like, you, you, you might want this accounting of it, which I think is fair, but also, you know, what needs to be fixed kind yeah. of right. There's, there's stuff that you can just go out and do and not have to say, we've got to have this probably wildly exhaustive, expensive, hard to scope investigation. And you can just go out and say, okay, how do we strengthen our coaching requirements? How do we figure out better reporting mechanisms? How do we figure out, you know, educating young players, what is acceptable behavior? Because I think that education piece is gonna be Mm -hmm. really, really important moving forward. Going back to your article from, it was about a year ago that it came out, September 30th, 2021 in The Athletic. How did that story come to be? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's probably a whole second story about (laughs) getting the story across the line because I want to say the first phone call I got was in May and that story didn't publish until September. So there were a lot of parts to it also because it's not we, I think we're very intentional kind of as a, a group of it's not just necessarily about the stories of these two players, but there is the larger story of the institutional betrayal that's happening here. And so both of those parts had to, you know, be reported out in terms of not just these bad things are happening, but the league has never mm-hmm. handled them correctly. Right. Which is, again, mm-hmm. what we saw this past week with the Yates report, both of these parts of terrible things are happening, but also no one is taking responsibility for them in the slightest. So, you know, obviously there were a lot of interviews. There were a lot of interviews with players who did not want to be named, who did not want to go on the record because of fear of retaliation, right? Paul Riley at the time was still this super well-respected head coach in the NWSL, a ton of wins, championships, all sorts of, you know, like he was really kind of the golden boy in terms of performances with the North Carolina Courage, Um, but also he has reach within other parts of the game, especially the youth game. So whether they were still playing retired, there was still this fear of if I put my name on this, what happens to me? Right. And I think we're still seeing that even now Mm -hmm. in terms of some players or former players or people associated with the game, um, not wanting the consequences of potentially coming forward. And There was also the sense of, okay, we have to figure out exactly what went wrong with some of these investigations and then the reporting mechanisms. And, you know, I remember having conversations trying to figure out, like, if there was a player handbook and if the player handbook (laughs) addressed any sort of behavior like this and then finally getting the player handbook and reading it. And legitimately, I think half of it is like, don't insult the league on Twitter. (laughs) So... Right. Um, Protect the brand. Exactly. Protect the brand. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there were there were just a lot of pieces to it. And then also there was an Olympic tournament 
in the middle of that, right? And I am not a, a dedicated investigative reporter. I am a person who writes about women's soccer. So there was a sense of, okay, this is a, a project that is happening at the same time of all of this other stuff, but also we don't want to get it lost in the shuffle of the Olympics um, because that is a time where it's it's really, you know, had it been a World Cup, maybe I think it would have progressed, but with the Olympics, it's a much larger thing than just women's soccer happening. And so there was also still more reporting to be done. And then as soon as the Olympics ended, it was really nose to the grindstone in terms of trying to get the story across the line. But, you know, I remember the day before the story ran, and fortunately, so Katie Strang, who also supported in terms of reporting, who is an actual investigative reporter at The Athletic, had really been telling me, you're going to have the amount of stress that you're going to go through in in the time leading up to the story, especially the week leading into the story, your body's going to do weird things to you and you have to be prepared. And I'm just so glad that I had someone who'd lived through it before trying to walk me through because I remember waking up the morning before and that was when we were going to teams to get final statements for the story. And I woke up and I started brushing my teeth and I want to say it was seven o'clock in the morning and I almost like threw up into the sink mm. because I was so stressed out about it. And as each uh, statement came in from each team, the league itself, and each statement. If you go back and read some of those original statements, I think now we know <laughs> how much they knew, right? That I didn't know mm -hmm. at that time. And I think, A, they look so much worse, right? Mm -hmm. Now, a year later, we know what was going on behind the scenes in terms of the scramble, but also what these teams knew and they look especially bad, but as each one came in and it was kind of worse and worse and worse, I think the confidence level and what we were doing in the, in the story itself just got stronger and stronger and stronger. And so then the next morning when it went live at 7am and it was just kind of waiting to see what happened. And obviously things accelerated really, really quickly within the span of even that single day. What's next? Like, it, it seems like it's such a large problem. And I think some of those recommendations that uh, a lot of those recommendations Sally put in were fantastic and doable right away. But what do you think is the most important first steps coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think even just setting aside the NWL stuff, right? Like in terms of the accountability pieces, which it, those dominoes are already starting to fall. And I think they're just going to kind of continue to fall until the investigation comes out. But in terms of the bigger systemic recommendations, I mean, we did see that kind of immediate action stuff from U.S. soccer. But I think to your point, the scope of the problem within U.S. soccer and also knowing some of the internal politics and you know, how do you get a state association in Idaho to do the same thing that a state right. association in Texas that mess, you know, like it's just the actual logistics of trying to get some of the stuff across the line, I think is going to be really tough. Um, so again, I think, I think the reporting part of it, making sure that there are reporting mechanisms mm -hmm. at every level is really crucial. And that players know that those reporting mechanisms exist because I remember having a conversation with, U.S. soccer a few months in and just saying, like, does a, 
a 14 year old know how to report something that's happened to her? Because I wouldn't like even right now, I would not know how to report that if I were her. Right. right? Like you've got a the education part in terms mm-hmm. of the reporting is really important. But I think honestly, the, the, the main takeaway for me, too, is still that education piece like that is going to be really tough and really expensive. But if you can figure out some sort of even baseline education system for youth players right off the bat, whether that is a training that maybe some of them are going to sit through and some of them are going to completely ignore, right? But to get that baseline of this is what your coach is allowed to do, I mean... And have some guidelines in place. And 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 this is where you're going to go to report it. Right, right. I mean, even if it is just the most basic thing, so that way if there is something that does not sit well with them... Because I think shame is such a big part of it too, right? And feeling that isolation and that comes with no matter what age it is. And so if there is some sort of anonymous reporting mechanism that exists for every, like that is absolutely something that has to be in place, but also accessible and, and easy to find. So, and to feel like you could go to, instead of, you know, if you're playing for a high school team, right? Like go find some teacher or something that's going to help. Like you have to, feel like, oh, I can take it to the top without revealing myself. And maybe someone from the outside is going to come in and not know it was me, but they're going to put a stop to like, there's that sense too, of having that option. So, but it, the, the scale but of the, the program, I think is revelation in that. I, I mean, yeah. I, I had heard rumblings that safe sport was ineffective, but when you're reading that only 8% of cases brought to them or formally resolved and that you have 30 staff members working for what 11 million athletes yeah i mean it's just i mean come on yeah i mean in the congress and usop yeah usopc you know set this up as like this is our solution to this it's like well then give it some teeth yeah and i mean the gymnasts have been saying that really since the beginning right the safe sport it's just it's not, not it. It's not it. Yeah, it's not <laughs> and safe. So, and that, I think, is really what we have also seen within this NWSL situation. Like, the fact that Christy Hawley could not be reported to Safe Sport because he didn't have the coaching license, right? Like, there right. are even just kind of logistical failures within that system. But that, I think, is the, the thing where you have governing bodies that use Safe Sport almost as, like, a shield for their own liability yeah. of, well, yeah. we'll send it over to Safe Sport, but then, hey, Safe Sport's got it. We can't do anything about it. So there is that always almost like a dumping grounds, right, of if we don't want to deal with it or if we want it to disappear, there is the option of safe sport. And that is one of the big Yates report takeaways of there's just no one owning player health and safety, right? Mm -hmm. You have teams bouncing it to the league and the league bouncing it to the federation, the federation. There's always another person you can blame. You Especially keep, when you've got just kept four, kicking five, the can. six yep. layers of organizations to say, hey, it's their problem. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the thing of who is going to be the person to step up and willingly take on that liability. And so I think the recommendation, right, of, of saying, like, league should have a player health and safety officer of some kind. You have to you just have to own that process because that's the mm-hmm. only way it's going to turn into a proactive relationship and but that's that to to leagues and teams is going to be really nerve-wracking right because there is that liability thing like that's one of the big the big things is everybody put the liability (laughs) ahead of what was happening to players right and undoing that mindset 
right is not some overnight switch it's just not how did abuse become part of the culture i just think it always has been <laughs> like that's unfortunately the real answer is that it goes it it you know obviously it extended back to wps right and NWSL was formed in 2012 and then started in 2013 with absolutely zero understanding or or changes in direction after what happened with Magic Jack, which is, I think, really one of the most baffling things to me is we watched what happened to WPS. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, WPS, I think, had its own issues. and But like that was really one of the leagues that you know, I, I was an intern in, in WUSA. <laughs> I uh, was around during WPS yeah, you days. You worked but on both sides, the league side yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. So and what is Magic Jack? So Magic Jack was the old Washington Freedom that got purchased by a, a businessman who literally the product was Magic Jack, um, Dan Borislaw. It was like a telephone communication thing, which was, you know, the aughts. Um, and he moved the team to Florida, and it was basically like his little in-house pro soccer team right espn actually has probably the best reporting on what actually happened at magic jack at the time and that story opens with this recounting of a dinner that he invited the team to where he told the players to call him daddy so i mean that that basically sums up the vibe right but he had ignored league minimum standards right like there was not enough the the stadium that they played in wasn't good enough there was no um benches for people to watch games there were no medical personnel he wasn't showing like the the signboards along the the pitch Mm -hmm. right so i mean like not only was it like dumb stuff that the league was fighting him about but then you also had this huge huge problem with the way that he was addressing players um you know, there were like legitimate health issues where one player got hurt mm-hmm. and instead of taking her to a doctor or allowing her to see a doctor, I think he took her out to dinner instead and just was like, you're fine. Don't worry. Like, you don't need to go to a doctor. Like, it's mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, and as you're explaining this, I didn't know this story. It all sounds very familiar to what mm-hmm. the Ye- is in the Yates report. Right. It just oh, sounds I like mean, history he repeating itself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Lack, exactly. Total lack of professionalism. I would put professional in air quotes yes i mean all it goes back to that just be grateful mindset i mean and 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 it took and we're not there clearly but it took i think um it's going to take i don't think obviously we're past tense it's going to take uh, new blood new ownership new capital in terms of people willing as you mentioned meg earlier like they just weren't willing either to uh, have any accountability on the player side, and I, you know, the question keeps coming back: Does new ownership change this? Right? We don't know. Sure, yeah. we hope so. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of that was like, and and Sally Yates said it in the report: Do the current owners have the capital required? to be able to sustain a league at the level it should be sustained at, which was always a question in the past. The way out is is money, right? Like truly, that is the way in in terms of sponsors for the NWSL doubling, you know, like a, a sponsor like Ally already putting out that statement and being like, we're horrified, but like we know fundamentally that us pulling the sponsorship only harms the players and right. us being able to apply pressure to the league is a more powerful thing than 
us removing the sponsorship. So I, I think that there are a few people who really get that. But to your point, we did also learn in that report of, OK, the, the minimum amount of money that a, the primary owner for a team has to have is $15 million for a group. That number goes to $25 million, but there's no requirement in terms of capital spend per year for a team. Mm-hmm. So you do have people who are you know, yeah. using it as like a tax write-off. Then <laughs> you do have people who are legitimately in it to to do the right thing. And I do think that there's going to obviously have to be turnover at the ownership level, but this is going to be the big challenge is if you're looking for a new owner at this moment in time, right? Like what what is happening with the NWCL? Like who is going to have the vision to not only come in and spend a lot of money, but the vision to come in and spend a lot of money and actually like be committed to the work that needs mm-hmm. to happen, right? So that's going to be really, really interesting. But I, I do think like every ownership group is going to make mistakes in some, like no one's ever going to get it 100% right. But usually we're just hopeful that the mistakes are like, oh, they they bet on something that, you know, or like, oh, the sponsorship's maybe a little bit questionable. And instead we're mm-hmm. seeing levels of mistakes that are just kind of beyond, right? But can you, <laughs> this is going to skew into territory that I, I often find myself in, but like, is there such a, a thing as a good ownership group or a good owner? Because the level of money that you have to have in order to own a sports team, especially if it's just a single person, kind of suggests that maybe there's stuff that we're not going to feel comfortable with as like an average mm-hmm. person, right? Mm-hmm. Like in order to have that amount of money to sustain a sports team. And maybe it's different from like NFL owners, right? Who are constantly questionable <laughs> in terms of their mm-hmm. ethics, but the expectations for the ethics of NWL owners are so much higher from the people who are in this landscape. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to this point, I think Angel City has been really interesting because Angel City again, has not had this kind of perfect journey into the space, but I think has fundamentally kind of tried to approach it differently, mm-hmm. right? And and I wrote about this when I went out to the Angel City home opener, like, and it's, it's funny to try to talk about it with you, you know, being an owner, mm-hmm. but like, there is this group of people who doesn't know any better, right? Like who can yeah. imagine this other version of what an NWSL team can be like, because they're not coming from this place of cheapness or fear or, well, women's sports aren't valuable, right? Like it's just yeah. people who fundamentally see this and are coming at it from this mindset of like, it could be amazing. Like yeah. if we truly like sink the money, why are we acting like we shouldn't be doing this, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's been such a, a thing in the NWSL of sustainability, sustainability, sustainability. Don't spend yeah. money. Like, we have to be yeah. smart about it. We have to be tight about it. And Angel City comes in and is like, N- there's a completely different way to do mm-hmm. this. And having the former players' voices in there, I think, is really important, too, because you're getting voices saying, like, hey, we've lived through XYZ and we can't do that mm-hmm. again. Yeah. But that's one team. It's interesting right? you say that because that's that's always what I talk about as an owner of Angel City of for the very first time on the various ventures I've been a part of that you sense a complete shift in mindset that everything before was eh, we can't do that because it's not possible. Or you had to like then spend five hours explaining why you thought it was possible and why women's sports actually is something you should bet on and why there's an upside to this. This is the first time I've been a part of a group where you don't 
expend all that energy trying to say why this is important. They're like, yeah, no shit. This is amazing. <laughs> like, this is what's possible rather than um, come starting at a place of what's impossible, if that makes sense. So yeah. it, you, de you definitely feel that, right? Whether yeah. that leads us into a better space, I'm entirely hopeful and confident in that group. But, you know, we actions speak louder than words, as we all know. So um, I'm really hopeful we can lead in that space. But it's just completely different because you have this incredible group that really believes in the potential and the upside and wants to protect, it feels like. I mean, I think about a team like Chicago, right, who had have been around right where NWPS had to drop down a level and then came back in to the NWSL and just the way that that team I think has always been hamstrung by a lack of ambition right and I mean you look at where the team is now in, in terms of SeatGeek Stadium and that's not to say Chicago is a really tough market to crack like major mm -hmm. medium market not a great place for them to play mm -hmm. Like there's just kind of so many different things stacked against them. And there, I, I just think that there has been a little bit of fear running that organization of we've got to survive and not figure out a way to truly break out and figure out what needs to be done mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. order to actually become a part of the fabric of the community. Mm -hmm. And it's been a really long time coming too of, you know, playing at universities way outside of the city, moving into SeatGeek, which to be fair now, they can kind of make their own with the Chicago Fire moving into to Soldier Field, but it's just so inaccessible, right? And, and you know, Lynn, to your point about professionalism, like this is where teams like that struggle, where the ambition isn't there. So the feel is, is this is small time. And it, it feels like this kind of vicious loop. And that's not just for the for the players and, and the facilities that they're getting or the fact that they're living with host families and trying to figure out how to get to trainings, but also just if fans have to work so goddamn hard to get to your game and to enjoy that game and to feel like they're a part of the team, like that does eventually, I think, have an impact on the team itself. And Chicago is one of those teams where I think you have the people who are dedicated to Chicago are just like truly above and beyond because mm -hmm. the work that they have to do to support that team just mm -hmm. can't be overstated. Mm -hmm. And so when you get stuck in this pattern of, okay, we're not making strat, like we're not getting in, we're not doing this. And then it just, it has felt kind of like a, a cycle of, of, fear in terms of the ambition for over a decade there that's i think where it, it really like you look at a chicago versus an angel city and it's just those are two teams in the same league and they could not be further apart after learning a lot more about the nwsl in the last week where i struggle with is wanting to support the players yet not wanting to support an abusive league and wondering how do those, how do those two coexist? It's a really tough question. And, and Megan Burke, who's the executive director of the PA, has really said this too. And, you know, I think her, her fear is that people are going to abandon the teams and then the players are the ones who are actually really hurt. Yeah. And 
I don't know if there is a good answer because I think every single person has to make the decision for themselves of, okay, my season ticket fund is maybe going to line the part, the pockets of one of these owners. Right. And really are the, are the players benefiting from this? If I go directly to, um, if I donate directly to the PA instead of having season tickets, is that better? You know, I think every, every person is probably making their own decision about what, (laughs) what their supporter, you know, like, how they adjust their behavior. I One of the big, I'm just fascinated to see how these playoffs go, right? Because we've had the international break. So we did not have games last weekend. This Like we just were kind of waiting to see what happens. But ultimately, I think one of the strongest things that could maybe happen is people still come to these games, but there are meaningful, big banners in the stands, right? Like, Mm-hmm. Portland doesn't have a game until the 23rd, I want to say. It's it's not this next weekend, but the weekend, mm-hmm. you know. What happens? Empty seats are going to say something, but I think people in those stands trying to make a statement says even more, especially because this game is going to be on television, right? So there's a way to show up for players, even while maybe you're giving money to the team. There's a way to support the players without giving that money. There's a way to support the players by giving the money directly to the players. I think all of those are maybe valid options. And there's no right answer here. Mm-hmm. And that's a really tough thing to grapple with right at the moment. But fundamentally, the players, I think, are afraid about what happens to the league or a team because that is their career. And so... Mm-hmm. That, I think, is kind of the balance that we have to have right at the moment of the players are still fundamentally dependent on these organizations in order to play. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really tough, it's a really tough moment right now. But I think that there are, there are multiple paths through for, for people who are trying to figure out a way to support the players. It's just a matter of like what you are most comfortable with at this moment in time. And that could also change in the future. I get a sense, too, that that fame base is so strong and so loyal to the player. Always has been, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding of what they've had to endure over the years in terms of growth, that they'll show up and they will not be silent, as you pointed out. Like This is a fan base that is rabid in terms of Um, its ability to get its messaging out, which I think is fantastic. I mean, we're seeing this on so many levels in women's sports that it's not just about the sport for the fan, of course. It's about something much larger, which is what I've always loved about our fan base. And so they'll show up and they'll show up demanding change and reform. And I think and hope, honestly, that they're part of this new wave because they're going to keep demanding reform. I think that there's real power in this moment that belongs to the fans. And, you know, I think it is interesting because some of the conversations I've I've had with NWSL people in terms of the transparency part, right? Like more transparency is absolutely needed, but then there is a level of transparency that the fan deserves versus like what the players deserve, which I think is completely valid. But what, I think we have seen, especially out of a Portland, right, is that 
I mean, you look at their last display from the last Thorn Games, and, it, and the display was like, this club belongs to us. Like, the club belongs to the community. It is mm-hmm. bigger than one owner. It just, it, like, it truly is. It's yeah. the play. You do not have the NWSL without the players. You do not have the NWSL without the supporters. And I think both of these groups know that. And that's what has been turning the tide a little bit in terms of mm-hmm. being able to put on more pressure for the organizations and the people in power to do the right thing because they're outnumbered by a whole lot (laughs) they truly are and like yes they hold the power but if the players you know choose to do something if the fans choose to do like public pressure is going to be such a major player sponsorship player is going to be such a major player i mean you have a sponsor like alaska airlines updating their statement to say we are going to take our sponsorship money for this entire quarter from not just the thorns but the timbers as well and donate it Mm -hmm. directly to the support the players fund like that stuff is going to help move the needle and it's going to be painful and it's going to be messy for right now right to your point of like deciding if you're going to go to a game or not but all of these forces are starting to get in. And in terms of like the actual NWSL accountability part, we are kind of in this weird holding point because we have the Yates report, but we don't have the joint investigation report. But we like (laughs) the pressure's already on. The pressure I think is only gonna keep growing and growing and growing. And if for some people, if it waits until the joint investigation report comes out, then from that, I, I think it's just, it's gonna, you know, the frogs are in the pot and and the water's going up. Meg, well, I hope out of all of these ashes and that juxtaposition to your point of that Wimbley game and it's selling out in 24 hours and what really is um, a shining moment for women's soccer and seeing that the world is finally seeing this potential and, and, and that is what excites me. But good God, we've got to clean up a lot of the mess underneath it. And I hope with all these revelations and these reports that it turns to action and action quickly, as we know. Um, But I can't thank you enough for your reporting, which started all of this. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it has been a very long and strange, I mean, honestly, like two years at this point. But I think... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I almost think that you have to have hope and that it's going to improve. And I think things have changed to some extent, right? Like, I think we have already seen changes and it's just a matter of can, can all of this pressure come through? And and that was one of the big conversations, like as the story was being reported of, of just like, we know that we're going to basically toss a grenade into this room and you know, the NWSL as it existed did not deserve to exist. And so I think the league has to justify through action why it deserves to exist. I do feel meaningful change is finally coming. And I'm just hopeful this for all sports, all genders. We will, of course, have more conversations as this evolves. Thank you to our Dope Village for continuing this journey with us. And thank you to our sponsors, Ally and Dick Sporting Goods, along with Kate Diaz for our theme music. It is indeed good to be back. See you all next week. Bye.